the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be picking it up in Matthew chapter 4. George Will, in his book, Minute Work, he uh, kind of looked at four different key baseball players and kind of just interviewed them, investigated their lives. One of the guys that he examined was Oral Hershiser, and I'm sure many of you are familiar uh, with him, with Dodger fame. This great pitcher kind of disclosed his secrets, and he kind of talked about there are really two theories in pitching. First one is that you just kind of try to convince the batter that you're going to throw a particular pitch, and then you throw a different one. Okay, that's that's he said is really the common theory among pitchers. That's what they do. He says, but Hershiser said, you know, I actually did the opposite. I try to get them to kind of think that a certain pitch was coming, and then I would actually throw that pitch, but I'd throw it just a little bit out of their range, so that they'd see the pitch they were expecting and they'd swing at it. So if this guy was a high ball hitter, he'd throw that pitch. And he'd throw it just a little bit too high for them either not to be able to hit it, or if they did hit it, it would be a real poor hit. And he says, you know, I knew that they couldn't lay off it. And hence he, exceed, he achieved a great deal of success. You know, Hershiser kind of actually articulated the strategy of our great nemesis, Satan himself. The devil is in the process of throwing pitches at you. Me. He knows we're weak. He knows our tendencies. And he throws it in such a way that we kind of go striking out. And we're going to swing at pretty much anything that he's throwing at us. And really, temptations come everywhere. I mean, let's get this just real clear. Every single person in this room, it doesn't matter your age, your spiritual maturity, how long you've walked with Christ. Every single one of us faces temptation and they run the gamut. Anything from sex to money to power to self-centeredness, alcohol, drugs, doubting God, gossip, doubting whether he really cares for us or he's in control or can his word be trusted. I mean, they are out there and they are just it's just myriad legion when it comes to temptations. In fact, it seems like in our particular age, the day in which we live. Temptation is at an all-time high. I mean, you literally, you can't escape it. It's everywhere from the malls to the billboards to the TV. It is the great plague of the Internet. It saturates so many of our movies. There's all these solicitations to do evil, to walk away from God, to buy into a plan that Satan himself is the strategist too. And how in the world can we actually over? come all these solicitations to do what is evil there's only one way and that is that we have to look to jesus now last week we saw that the father god the father made a declaration about god the son in fact you can see it in matthew chapter 3 verse 17 this amazing scene in verses 16 and 17 where you see the spirit of god coming and actually alighting upon the Savior himself, descending as a dove, lighting on him. Then you see the Son of God standing there, and then you have God the Father making a declaration about his Son. And he says in verse 17, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the declaration made by the Father. This is my Son, This is the Savior, this is the Messiah, and I'm well pleased by him. Now, 
what is going to take place here is there's going to be a great testing. There's been this great declaration from God himself. Okay, people heard this. They saw Jesus. They saw this dove. They heard the proclamation of John the Baptist. And now there's going to be a test. There's going to be a test that's going to come. And chapter four begins with that test. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, I want you to notice that is the spirit of God that leads Jesus into the wilderness. And for 40 days, he is there. And you see this in verse two, after 40 after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he became hungry. Jesus is in this desert. And for 40 days, 40 nights, he goes without food. So this desert kind of, you know, where Jerusalem is. We make your way all the way to the Dead Sea. That whole region between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea is barren and is desolate. It's actually where John the Baptist came from when he starts making his proclamation in the wilderness. And Jesus goes there in a time of fasting. Now, fasting is a time where you just set aside the eating of the food so that you can focus on prayer. And that you are going to be one with the Father's plan. And that is actually what is taking place here. And it is the Spirit of God that takes Jesus into the, into the wilderness. And notice he is to be tempted by the devil. Now, that word tempted is interested. Greek word parazzo. It has, it has two different meanings. One is to test or to prove. Okay? Like you would test metal to prove its strength or integrity. But it also, the exact same word, could also be used as a solicitation to evil. It's to draw you to do that which is wrong. Okay? And so that's what you find here. There is to be a testing that is going to take place. What God is going to show the world is that indeed this is his son. He is going to pass the test with flying colors. He reveals who he is. But from Satan's perspective, he's trying to solicit Jesus to go away from his father's plan. And so what we find here is Jesus is in the desert. Now, this leads to a rather staggering question. Could Jesus sin? Is it possible that Jesus, the son of God, he's fully God, fully man. Is it possible that he could sin? Okay. Was he not able to sin or was he able to? Not to sin. Theologians have for hundreds of years wrestled with this. And so what I'd like you to do is just turn to your neighbor and straighten that out. Okay? Did you do that? Could, could Jesus possibly sin? Was he impeccable? Meaning, was he not able to sin? Well, let's just talk a little bit about that. First of all, Jesus is fully man. Meaning that he hungered. He was thirsty. He could be grieved to the point of death. You find that before he goes to the cross, he is actually drops of blood are flowing from him. It's, it's he's in this extreme condition. Jesus experienced everything we experience in our humanity. He could be weak. He could be injured. He could bleed. He could die. But Jesus is also fully God. In this respect, he's completely different from us. He has divine power. He is all powerful. He is also he has all wisdom. So he is not going to be deceived because he can actually discern what is from right and from wrong. He also has all knowledge. He knows what has happened, what is and what is to come. And he also has a complete love for the father and a, and a holy 100 percent desire to do his will. In fact, that will be an ongoing statement that Jesus makes. I have come to do the will of my father. And so it is not that Jesus 
would love to sin, but that he couldn't. But there is something intrinsically inherent to Jesus as God that makes it impossible for him to sin. Now, it's kind of like this. If I were to say uh, there is a person here today who's going to meet you after service, who is going to make you a valid offer to sell your children into slavery. How would you respond? Oh, my. Hope the answer is no. Okay. (laughs) I was thinking we'd do a little better. Okay. And the person that said, I would like a little bit more information. No, 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 no. The answer, the answer is no, because there is something within you that says absolutely not because I love my children. I, I simply could not do that. And yet there could be a valid offer that is made. This is really, as some theologians have said, this is like Satan's attempt is like a rowboat trying to assault a destroyer. The assault is there. The temptations that the devil is going to throw at Jesus, and they're going to be summarized in three, are very real. But Jesus being God will not succumb to them. So, yes, Jesus could be tempted from without. He could receive those temptations, but from within, he could never yield to them. You and I, we have the lust of the flesh. We desire, and there's something in us, there's a propensity to evil, that in Jesus, there has never existed. And so the Spirit of God is going to show the integrity of the Son. It's kind of like taking a test in college. The test reveals that you truly know the information. You show yourself to be competent as a student. What these tests are going to do is going to show that, indeed, Jesus has absolutely sinless character. And so the devil makes his appearance. Now, the devil is is he actually is introduced in Genesis chapter three. He is not only the great nemesis of mankind, he sets himself up as the arch rival and enemy to God. Now, he doesn't have absolute sovereignty. He can't do absolutely whatever he wants. He actually must yield to God. And in the end, it happens that way. He can do nothing that God does not allow to some degree to happen. So when he comes and he is the tempter, he is he has legitimate means to tempt, but he is not God himself. And we can find like from the book of Isaiah that the devil himself desires worship. He not only wants the alignment of people under his sway. But he actually wants to be worshipped. And ever since the fall of man, people who are dead in their trespasses and sins give yield to him, whether they recognize it or not, whether they're going public with it or they just don't simply understand this is the way they live and why they live that way. He has great power, but he doesn't have absolute power, as we're going to see from this text. And so we have the devil and he comes after Jesus has been in the desert for 40 days, 40 nights. He's been fasting and he comes to test or to tempt Jesus. And so in verse three, we find that the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, we don't know why he, he comes in this particular fashion and starts off with this particular uh, temptation, nor do we know what he looks like. We don't know if he comes. Uh, there's all sorts of conjecture as a wretched old man, as an angel of light, as a Pharisee and scribe. Or perhaps he came like when he came to Eve as a serpent. But you're going to find that these tests or these temptations are the uh, have exact parallels to how he tempts Eve. There's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes 
and the boastful pride of life. And as we go through these tests, there's something that we're supposed to learn about life. There are three truths that we're going to learn. And the first one is, is that power for life comes from communing with God, not consuming food. And so Satan begins with the physical. He begins with the flesh and he says, listen, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, you may read this and go, well, he's questioning whether or not you are the son of God. In the Greek, this is absolutely clear. This is a first class condition. This is this word should be translated since he's not questioning. Well, if you really are the son of God, no, he absolutely knows. He's saying, since you are the son of God, why don't you go ahead and feed yourself? You're hungry. Doesn't your father care that you're starving here? Why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Nothing wrong with that, is there? Look at Jesus in his response. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He begins by quoting from Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. And in this particular scene, there is a testing that is taking place here. And and and, in, and back in Deuteronomy, you see, he's recounting the events that take place in the Exodus. He actually had a situation where God actually allowed his people Israel to go hungry and to experience that pain so that they would learn to trust him and him alone for their provisions. He was trying to teach them that you are not self-sufficient. You need me. I'm going to take you into the desert and I'm going to strip you down. I'm going to even allow you to be hungry so that you will learn to depend upon me and I will feed you. But there is one lesson that you must learn, and that is the lesson that Jesus quotes here in Matthew chapter four, verse four. Man shall not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was the purpose of why God let him let led the people of Israel into the desert. Remember from when they escaped out of Egypt to teach them you rely upon me. You need the word of God more than you actually need physical food. And you see, friends, spiritual life requires spiritual food. The spirit of God takes the word of God to develop the work of God in a person's life. And you cannot you cannot divorce the word of God from one's spiritual life. Because this is the sustenance in which God has given us to feed upon. If you are trying to live your life apart from having a regular intake of the word of God, it is like a person, a person that is trying to go through life that rarely ever eats. You're, you're, you're famished and your life will reflect that true physically, true spiritually. And if you've tried this out for size, perhaps you've straggled in here and you are spiritually anemic. And you know why? Because man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so you see, Jesus, Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of this. He is walking with the father. He is abiding in his will. He is fulfilling all righteousness. And Jesus has a food that you do not know about. And that food is to feed upon the word of God itself. You see, power in life, it comes from communing with God, not just in consuming food. And we've got this all backwards. We are generally oftentimes, what, 
gluttons, right? Man, we are so good at eating and we've got all you can eat buffets and we know how to pack it in and pile it on, right? But when it comes to our spiritual lives, pretty much anything can become more important than that. Anything from laying flat on our back to just doing nothing. And yet Jesus says, you cannot live on just bread alone. You need the word of God. And so Jesus passes the test. He will not align himself with anything Satan must suggest to him as what he should do. Well, there's a second truth that we can learn about life because Satan doesn't give up. Have you noticed that? Just because you pass one test doesn't mean that another isn't just lying just about a few minutes away. And so we see this second test and we find that there's going to be another truth that Jesus actually reveals about life. And that is that protection in life comes from trusting God not testing him. So look at verse five. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if or you could translate that since you are the son of God, why don't you throw yourself down for it is written. This is a very sophisticated temptation because I want you to notice this. Satan uses scripture. Satan is going to use a a claim from Scripture, a promise directed to the Messiah about the Messiah to try to get Jesus to do as he wants him to do, not the father's will. And so he says, he says, why don't you do this? He takes him to the this pinnacle of the temple. okay? and it's this pinnacle of the temple. You see that in verse five. This is believed to be the southeast corner of the temple. Josephus writes that there was this huge retaining wall from the top of the corner of the temple all the way down to the Kidron Valley was about four hundred and fifty feet. And so he takes them there. He takes Jesus, whether it's in a vision or actually they physically are are, are taken to this scene. And he says this, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for here from here, for it is written, verse six, he will command his angels concerning you and their hands will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Why don't you go ahead and do as the scripture said? Now, there's something else that's rather fascinating about this particular temptation. You see, in Malachi chapter three, the final prophet, right right before these 500 years of silence in Malachi chapter three, verse one, there is this great claim about the Messiah. And I want you to listen to it. It says this Malachi chapter three, verse one. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like who? John the Baptist, right? Isn't that what he said? I'm in the wilderness. I'm making the path straight for the Lord. I'm clearing it out. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then it goes on in the same verse. It says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies. And so in the first century, there was a widespread belief that Messiah was going to come and he was going to descend from the Mount of Olives. He was going to enter through the Golden Gate or the Eastern Gate. In fact, they always kept that gate a jar because it led into the temple because of this belief that the Messiah was going to walk in there and proclaim himself and show himself to the Jewish nation. So they left the door ajar and they were waiting. And all of this 
is reminiscent of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And so when Satan makes this proposal, he is saying, why don't you do this? Since you really are the Messiah, why don't you go and you appear on the temple like everybody's expecting and you go and show yourself to truly be God. Throw yourself off into that Kidron Valley, that 450 foot drop and watch those angels catch you and have you land without even a scar. And the Jews will follow you and believe in you. Why don't you do it? You're the Messiah. Isn't that what you want? And so that is what the temptation is. The problem is, this is not the will of the Father. You see, if Jesus was to do that, and don't you find that just a little unnerving, how powerful Satan is in his use of Scripture? If Jesus was to do that, there would be no redemption. There would be no suffering. There would be no proclaiming the kingdom as the will of the Father dictated. And so Jesus answers this, verse 7. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And this, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, where Satan is using Psalm 91, which is speaking about God's, the ability for us to have great trust in God What Satan does is he twists a psalm about trusting God into a psalm about testing God. Put him to the test. He said it. Why don't you just go and find out? Put God to the test. And Jesus says, you've missed it. Remember in the Exodus, God made it clear. You are not to test me, but to trust me. And how many people have got this wrong? God better do it this way. Or he says this and it better turn out the way I want it. Friends, the path to life is trusting God, not testing him. As Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. They were this scene, by the way, which Jesus is is referencing. The people of Israel about to actually have mutiny against Moses. And they were putting God to the test. They were thirsty and they they wanted more water to come out of a rock. And that's where these words come from. Do not test me, but trust me. Circumstances are hard, but our circumstances reveal what's really in our heart and really where our faith lies. He says, don't test me. Trust me. And that's what that's what Jesus actually writes here. You see, you know where protection of life comes from, friends? It comes from trusting God, not testament. And friends, that sometimes is hard because life is hard and it's painful and doesn't always work out the way we want. People hurt us. Things happen to us. Finances crumble. Jobs don't go the way we'd like. Kids perhaps don't turn out the way we'd like them. What we are called to do and we have through our faith in God able to do is to trust him. Well, Jesus passes this second test and that was an immense test. Right there. But there is a third one that is coming. This third test, Satan does not give up, reveals this truth when you look at Jesus' response. And that is that our purpose in life is found in worshiping and serving God, not denying and disregarding him. Look at this next test. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world 
and their glory. Did you see what he is able to do? And look what he says, verse 9. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, Satan isn't the ultimate ruler of the universe or the world. But make no mistake, he has great power ever since mankind through the first Adam entered into the fall. He has extreme power and influence exercised over the world. In fact, Scripture says of him that he is the God of this age. He is the prince of the power of the air. He is the ruler of this world. He has sway over nations and he can influence human hearts. We have people who are just subject to him. Why? Because they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. And so when he makes this presentation, to some degree, he has influence over these, but not ultimate. Jesus doesn't necessarily say you don't. Jesus doesn't necessarily say that he does. He's just simply presented with this great opportunity. Think of it. All of the nations, Israel, Rome, Parthia, all of the nations raising their flags in honor. And he says, listen, all these things I will give you. Isn't that what you want? The adoration of the nations and the people to have allegiance to you. Satan says, I'll make this really easy for you. All you simply have to do is simply bow down to me and I'll give it to you. There will be no weeping over Jerusalem. There has to be no agony in a garden. There has to be no crucifixion on a cross. All you have to do is just bow down. And he says, and worship me. I will give you all these things. Isn't that what you came to be the Lord of the nations? And Satan is saying, I can make that possible if you will simply go my way. But notice Jesus seeing the face of what is to come, because do you know what? It says in Revelation chapter 11, I believe it's in verse 15, when it's writing about the return of Christ, it says that absolutely he will have all of the nations and they will all bow in allegiance to him. But Jesus says in verse 10, go Satan. Jesus exerts his lordship and he makes the command, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. You see, Satan was offering the crown before the cross. What God is doing through Jesus, though, is he is bringing about the redemption of mankind. You and I need someone who is per- perfectly righteous, meaning he's never sinned. He has to fulfill all unrighteousness. He can never yield to even a single temptation, small or great. Because we need a savior who can die in our place, pay the penalty for our sins, give us his righteousness and put it on our account. And the same one who will take our sin and die in our place. And there is only one way in that which that can happen. And is that is if God, the son enters into humanity, fulfills the exact will of the father, never yields to temptation and does it. Yes, he will get the worship of the nations, but it will come after He has actually paid for the sins of his people. So Jesus says, you know what? Real purpose in life is found in worshiping and serving God, not denying him 
and disregarding him. And I'd like to just ask you, do you truly have God's purpose for your life? You can say with absolute certainty, yes, if you truly find the great value of truly worshiping him and serving him. So Jesus makes this great claim. He says, you know what? You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only because Jesus knows, as does Satan, who or what you worship, you will serve. If it's a person, money, materialism, sex, lust, greed, gossip, whatever it is that you seem to find your groove in, it seems to bring you internal drive and satisfaction, whatever you worship or whoever you will serve. And Jesus will never align himself with the plan of Satan. Can you imagine, by the way, that if Jesus would just in this time of great weakness, and he's been 40 days, 40 nights, he is absolutely hungry. By the way, 40 days is about the limit. After 40 days of no eating, you start physical harm that cannot be reversed. He is absolutely in a state of physical weakness, but he doesn't buy in. But imagine if he did. What a breach would would happen in just one small bow. Eternity would always feel this. Satan could always glory that for just a moment I have the Son of God bow before me. That there would be no redemption. And you know, that's kind of how Satan works when he presents things to us. He makes it look really attractive. He doesn't go, I am the devil, I am God's enemy, humanity's humanity's great disaster, and I want you to do this because I'm going to destroy your life and wreck it and send you to hell. So just do this. It never comes that way. Does temptation? No. Temptation always looks pretty good. Sin never looks like sin up front. It looks tasty. It looks candy. It looks like something I like. Sin comes like Judas with a kiss. It kind of comes like Joab with an outstretched hand and said, come on. It kind of comes like fruit that is desirable to make one wise and it looks good to Eve. And she bites in and tastes it. It's sin looks like David walking around on the top of his palace and seeing a woman bathing. And it turns into adultery and murder. It always looks attractive. And what Jesus is showing here is he will not ever, ever fall into the sway of Satan and buy into his plan because he came to fulfill the will of the father. And now don't get the idea that devil has realized that, whoa, game over. Jesus is is one and I will not bother him any further. No, this is a decisive victory. But Satan is going to come back time and time again. But Jesus makes the command, go, Satan, for you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. You know, this is pretty fascinating. Remember when in Psalm 91 that the devil quoted to him and says, listen, you remember what the angels are going to do? They're going to come. They'll bear you up. They're, they're concerned about you. Indeed, they are. But on God's timetable and notice verse 11, then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, how are you and I going to overcome temptation? Big problem. You and I, we are fully man. We are not God. There is something that's within us that is driven to wants to sin. The Bible calls it our flesh or our lust. And let me just tell you what this looks like. James actually spells it out 
in great detail. This is the first letter written in the New Testament. We covered here uh, not too long ago in James chapter one, verse 14. It says, let me just tell you how sin works. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So what happens is you're there's something inside of you that is drawn to what is evil. You're enticed by your own lust. And then it says, and then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What he's saying here is this is how temptation works. It's kind of like bait to an animal. And that bait is attractive. It smells good. It looks like it could be satisfying. And so what happens, whether it be on a fish hook or in some sort of trap, the animal goes for it. It thinks it's got itself a really easy meal. It looks good. It tastes good. It smells good. And then all of a sudden, trap. The trap snaps. It's on that leg or the hook is set and it's in the mouth and it starts taking that fish places it never wanted to go. That's how it works. And do you know this for the wages of sin is death. Do you know that? All these allurements to sin, they always bring about death. For the person who is yet to put their faith in Christ, this is their spiritual state. They are dead. They simply have no choice. They can't help themselves. Yeah, they can try to put some parameters. No, I shouldn't really do this or this sort of binge thing that I'm doing or this involvement sexually that I'm at. I shouldn't be doing these things. But there's nothing inside of them that can keep them from falling into it. On the other hand, for a believer, we have the power of the spirit of God and we simply don't need to live that way. But know this for certain, for the wages of sin is death and it sin always brings death, death of relationships, death of health, death of happiness. It brings breakdown. It's a disease. And so what we need is someone who can overcome temptation and sin for the wages of sin is death. Death, but the free gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If you had any question when you came in here, like, I'm not really sure I'm a sinner because I'm doing pretty good in life. Okay, I don't seem to have any problems. Everybody likes me and I seem to get everything done right. Uh -uh. We all know, you know, you yield to sin and temptation on a regular basis. You need a savior. And God has provided one in the Lord Jesus Christ. If anything should drive us to the cross, it is our succumbing and our failure when it comes to temptation. It shows that we're sinners, that we are weak, that we need someone who has overcome. And we can overcome temptation by relying on Christ, the overcomer. This is the only way when we are not only united with Christ, but we are trusting in him. Satan has great power. Don't think like, eh, not a big deal. Not a threat. He is on the move. And he is quickly bringing about death and destruction in the lives of millions of people. And so how in the world can we respond to temptation? There's some, just some simple principles that we can find with how Jesus faced temptation that we can learn. First of all, is that we, we need to be renewing our mind with scripture. Did you notice this, that in every one of the temptations that the devil threw at Jesus, how did he respond to them? He responded by actually quoting scripture. It says, like in Psalm 119, verse 11, your word, I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin 
against you. Temptations have a way of twisting reality. You know what the Bible does? It actually shows us the truth about what reality really is. And you are not going to be able to recall scripture, anything from the word of God, if you've never taken the time to have the word of God come into your heart and mind. God isn't going to call to mind something that was never put there, is he? No. And so one of the great values of being in the scripture is that it fortifies us. This word becomes part of our DNA. We start thinking biblically. Why? Because the Bible is a part of our life. You want to overcome sin and temptation. Why? It comes by renewing your mind with scripture. Let me give you another principle that we can learn about overcoming temptation. Relying upon the spirit. Notice Jesus is led by the spirit. This has the idea that he is fully yielded to the spirit's control. He's dependent upon the spirit. And that is how you and I as believers in Christ are to live. When you and I put our faith in Christ, it says like in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, that Christ's spirit actually comes into our life. We are not only new creatures, we have a new ability because of his spirit that resides within us. And so we will we actually can overcome by relying and trusting upon God and his spirit rather than trying to forge ahead on our own. And let me give you just one other third way that we overcome temptation. And that is resting in Christ. You and me, we're like fish in a barrel when it comes to Satan's and his ploys apart from completely resting in and trusting in Jesus Christ. Let me give you some verses that I find to be so helpful, comforting and directing in my life. Like Romans chapter 13, verse 14, it says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. When we're resting in Christ, you know what that means? We are trusting in Christ and his character. We are fixed and focused on Christ rather than the temptation. And when temptations come, think about Jesus. And I find this specifically powerful. Think about Jesus actually dying on the cross for you, for the sin that you're being solicited to buy into. It is it is by putting on the character of Christ that we can truly overcome. And Jesus has given us great resources in himself. Let me give you a few verses. Hebrews chapter two, verse 18. It says, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered was suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted when we're tempted, you are not alone, but you have the great resource of the Redeemer himself or Hebrews chapter four, verses 15 and 16. It says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then he says, you know what we are to do? Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, in Christ, we have the power in him to overcome. We don't have to give in. You don't have to live in sin, nor do you have to buy into the temptation. You recognize it. You call a spade what it is. And you run to Jesus and you rest in him and you can overcome. You see, temptation in itself is not wrong. Just because you're tempted does not mean like, ah, you're a great sinner. I know when we face temptations, whether it's be through our own discontentment or we're allured to different things, it, it makes you feel dirty. 
Right. But temptation in itself is not wrong. It's your response to it that determines whether it's right or wrong. And remember, every temptation is also a test. It could be a test to show that, yes, indeed, the spirit of God is alive and well in your life. That same solicitation to evil. And you're going to find it. Hey, don't be surprised when you face temptation. Rather expect it. Expect it in your homes, your hotel room, when you're traveling, when you're away with your friends at school, on the TV, at the movies. It's going to come. The question is, how will you respond? And we can respond correctly and can overcome through the overcomer. And know this, there is always a way of escape. You might want to jot this down, but 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man and God is faithful. Don't think that no one else has ever faced something like this, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. God has given you this promise. There is a way out. You can change the channel. You can walk out of that room. You can leave that fire. You can turn off that computer. You do not have to succumb to it. Why? Because we're in relationship with Christ, the overcomer. And what happens when we failed? Everybody batting a thousand when it comes to not yielding to temptation? Didn't think so. Me neither. Let me tell you the first verse I memorized as a Christian. First John one nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you will agree with God that that was wrong, I am sorry, I confess it. You have God's promise. You were cleansed. You see, God does not want us living in the failure of our sin. He wants us living in the fullness of his son and knowing the forgiveness that is found in him. He wants us always rejoicing in him. Even in our failures, we're rejoicing in Christ, our savior. And so that's what we do, friends. We can only overcome temptation when we are trusting the overcomer. John Krakauer, in his book, Into Thin Air, he counts the hazards that plagued the climbers of Mount Everest in the spring of 1996. And that particular trek of people that went up to try to reach the summit, it actually resulted in great life. And he wrote about these experiences. One of those guys who died was a man by the name of Andy Harris. He was actually one of the expedition leaders. Harris stayed at the peak way past the deadline. And when he was making his way back down, he started radioing that he is in desperate and dire need of oxygen. And was afraid that he was going to die. And he was making his way down. He came upon this big cache of these oxygen tanks. And they were radioing him and telling him about these tanks, that these tanks were, tanks were full and that he would have oxygen there. When he got there, he found those tanks. He radioed in and says, I have found them. But he says, they are empty. They're all empty. And they kept saying, no, they're full. Strap on. Take it. There's oxygen. You will live. But he kept arguing. And he argued Till his death. He never did. And in reality, those tanks were full of oxygen. That which he needed most, that which he was calling out for, was ready available. In fact, it was in his hands. And he simply did not use the resources that were available to him. And friends, that's a lot like temptation. 
We all face it. And it is hard, deceptive, disgusting, discouraging. But help is in our hands. It's in our heart. It's with the word and with the living word. We can overcome temptation only by relying on Christ, the overcomer. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the power of your word and for the amazing integrity of the Son of God, the true overcomer who's never yielded to temptation. Father, we find great refuge in him. Father, for all of us here who have failed in one way or the other, whether it be in our anger or self-centeredness, perhaps living out the lust of the flesh or engaging it in our mind. Father, we agree with you and confess it as sin and we, we cling to Christ and experience his forgiveness. And Father, I pray that you would give us strength to overcome. And for those who are here who have never put their trust and faith in Christ, would today they experience life and forgiveness in his name and just pray with me, Lord, you know all about me. You know about my destitute situation. And today I turn from myself and my sin and I trust Christ alone as my savior. And Lord, I experience forgiveness and newness in his name. Lord, our desire is to commune with you, to know your love and your grace and to reflect your glory to this generation. For your glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.